empower skills, they make you more effective in collaborating and working with others. So empathizing, being adaptable, knowing how to navigate uncertainty and still land on your feet and get things done. Welcome to Teach Me Something New. I'm your host, Britt Morin, and this is a production of iHeartRadio and Brit & Co. All my life, everyone's told me I should focus on being good at one thing. But the truth is, I'm curious about a lot of things. But how do you learn about everything? The answer? Make the world's best experts teach you in less than an hour. So come along with me as we all learn something new. If you've applied to a job recently, you might have seen phrases like team player, willingness to learn, and strategic thinker fill the description. But how does one actually develop these types of skills? Is it something you're born with or can you learn them over time? Joining us today is Suzanne Howard, the founder and dean of IDOU, a digital learning platform where anyone can learn to solve anything creatively. Today, we get to talk to Suzanne about how to maximize the unique set of power skills you bring to the table, how to stay innovative and lean into design thinking, and what role passion plays in your career. Welcome to the show, Suzanne. Thank you. It's good to be here. We've known each other for years now, and I've always been such a fan of IDEO, but I don't know if everyone knows what IDEO is. So maybe you can give us a little primer because to me, it's like one of my favorite brands in the world, but I don't know. So you explain it. Yeah. So IDEO is a global design and innovation company where we help products, services, brands, experiences, organizations, and entire systems and societies to go on a journey of change. And their hope is always that they'll increase positive impact in the world. And who are some of the brands that you've helped that you've worked with over the years that we might know? We've worked with organizations like the Gates Foundation or Ford Motor Company or Microsoft. So all over the map from Procter & Gamble to parts of the U.S. government. And what is it that you've seen that these companies are doing that are, might be getting in their way? You know, it seems like those are a lot of kind of like old school companies that are big, powerful brands, but you help them lean into this uncomfortable part of themselves. What is that? Yeah, I'd say the highest level across all of these organizations, the place that a lot of companies get stuck and a lot of leaders get stuck is that They've been doing something for a long time. They're really good at it. And all of a sudden, something changes in the world. And those same old things aren't working as well as they used to. And so if there's one overarching journey that we're taking people on, it is a journey of change, to change their habits, to change what it is that they put out in the world, to change the way that they interact with customers and consumers. And so shifting all of those habits and those processes and making new things in the world is really, really hard. I won't pretend that that's an easy thing for anybody to do. Yeah. I mean, I could think about that individually, but also within a company, right? If we've been on our own habits for so long and then we learn to try something new, <laughs> we just actually talked about the power of habit on this podcast. It takes repetition. It takes the act of just starting yeah, something new because a lot of people freeze right when they're about to take that leap, you know, because it seems too scary. But I find it interesting that 
you strike me as someone who's not scared of any of this. You know, I know your history. You've like traveled to all these places in the world. You've done all these different things in your life. So like, what is it about being in the middle of change that you find so compelling? I wouldn't say that I'm not scared of it. I think I just know the feeling of fear and I'm motivated to get beyond it. The way I think of myself as a student of change, that I definitely am always drawn toward new experiences, new places, things I haven't tried before. That's innate to my personality. At the same time, I know that change sucks, right? And it can be really hard. It's as hard for me as anyone to break a bad habit or figure out how to take a team that I'm working with on a journey to do things differently. And so as a result, I've always been fascinated with studying things that are about change. So learning experiences are all about change. Innovation experiences are all about changes in the marketplace and changes inside of the organization. I love studying social movements because I think they're about change at a societal level. And so I've been studying for the last few decades what makes it easier, what can help me, what can help other people, and then what can help groups of people to not only make the change, but help it stick over time. I was thinking about this and I was thinking like one of my mantras is from Frederick Douglass, just if there is no struggle, there is no progress. And I just believe that things that are worth doing have a little bit of friction in them. Mm, It reminds me of a quote that I think about a lot in business because I tend to be like a very optimistic person. I see the world through rose-colored glasses. I want everyone to be happy. I'm very like colorful and light. (laughs) But when you are in business, whether you're an entrepreneur or you're just trying to move up in your role, there's this quote that sticks with me, which is, your success is directly proportional to the amount of hard conversations you're willing to have. (laughs) Yeah. And it's so true because whether it's like firing someone, which is a really hard conversation, but you know that this person might be toxic for your company and like toxic for the team and everyone's morale. It's like, you have to have that hard conversation. A hard conversation about changing course. Like to your point, when you're in a big company, especially You just get lost in these habits and you're afraid to have the hard conversation to say like, shouldn't we be going west when we're going east or any other hard conversation? It's so difficult. And I think largely, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, I'm generalizing women have a harder time having hard conversations because we want to be likable and we were taught since we were little girls to just smile and accept everything as it is and move on with life. But like, I think a lot of times we get in the way of our own success as women because we aren't diving into these hard conversations. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think over the last kind of five or so years, leaning into tension is something that I've really been inspired to focus on because it was so hard for me. And fortunately, I have a bunch of other people around me who are also really into finding techniques that can help teams elevate attention and lean into it and try to make progress, try to empathize with each other's perspectives. And it was really, really hard for me because I like to be liked. And I think even more than we're nurtured as women to be liked, we also get looked down upon if we do bring tension into the room And so I think that's been a hard thing for me to figure out how to 
be myself, still be a female leader, and yet find ways to nurture myself and other people and teams through those sticky times. Do you have any examples of some of the hard conversations you've had to have over the last couple of decades? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so, so many. I mean, even just the last 18 months has been a series of hard conversations. I think when the pandemic hit, that brought so many tough conversations about how do we keep the business running when all of a sudden we're all working remote? And what are the new behaviors that we have? And when did we need to make space for new ways of working? And when did we need to ask people to try out something that was less than comfortable for them? All of those were hard. With the next wave of civil rights that the U.S. is in over the last year, there have been tons of hard conversations and lots of tough feedback for myself or others about things that we weren't aware of, that we had blind spots about. And so how do we come to term with those things? How do we lean into those tensions and spend time sitting in them, not try to race to the next solution? And then in the business, I mean, there's always something there about something that somebody's particularly passionate about, really wants to make the center of the roadmap moving forward. And how do you find the right delicate way to turn some of those things off? And when do you need to listen to what this person's passionate about and see if it does need to come in Mm -hmm. and shift the plans? I think that's one of the hardest jobs of being a manager. (laughs) It's like you want everyone's opinions to feel received, but learning when to listen and when to stay focused is an art for sure. (laughs) Absolutely. So you are the dean of IDOU. And I know we talked about IDEO, but maybe you can give us some color on what IDOU is and how it was created. Yeah. So IDOU is an entrepreneurial venture inside of IDEO. We launched a little less than eight years ago. And IDOU is an online learning platform where anyone, anywhere can learn to solve their own challenge more creatively. I love that. And I think design thinking and innovation are some of your most popular courses. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. The centerpiece and where we started with IDOU was some of the techniques that we had been teaching. IDEO is a 40-year-old company. And so for almost all of those 40 years, we had been teaching some of the elements of a process called design thinking. That's the root of everything, but we knew it couldn't only be that. And those were things that we had taught again and again and again, hundreds and thousands of times. And so part of bringing everything online, part of that impetus was that we could not only teach the basics, but also get to the advanced skills and methods. And so we branched out from design thinking to think about innovation in a business context, to think about leadership and what kinds of leadership skills are needed to help innovation and design thinking thrive And then we started thinking about something that we refer to as the power skills. So just what are all of the skills that are needed across all of those topics to make people successful in whatever they're working on? Oh, okay. Well, maybe we could dabble in a little of each one of those things to tee up people to go take some of these IDOU courses, but also (laughs) to give them insights into some of the things you've discovered. So first of all, what is design thinking for someone that might not know? So design thinking... The word design comes in there because it comes from the traditional practices of designers. And so what designers typically follow is a process where they frame a challenge and then they pull in all sorts of insights from understanding 
people, their needs, cultural context, and other stakeholders. They use that to diverge, so to pull in lots and lots and lots of ideas and get really generative and do things like brainstorming and ideation. And then they start to turn the corner to decide not just what might be, but what should be by prototyping and making things tangible and real. And then they just keep going through those cycles of articulating the next challenge, pulling in lots of input and diverging, then converging by making prototypes and testing, and do that a couple of times until they really have a solution that's human and customer-centered, that takes into account people as a central part, not just what the technology is or what the business needs are. That's what design thinking is. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So I actually discovered design thinking a little over 10 years ago. I left my job at Google. I was thinking about what kind of company I wanted to start next because I knew I wanted to start a company. And I was a cereal eater. And I always hated the fact that cereal is really difficult to eat. You have to have two hands. You can't like take it on the go. It'll spill And so one of my inventions of all time growing up was the cereal cup. And the cereal cup for me was a way to make cereal portable on the go. There's one sort of container for the cereal, one for the milk. And when you pour it in your mouth, you get like an even blend and you can even adjust it for how much saturation you want on the cereal. And Uh I posted ads on the Stanford campus for an industrial designer to help me prototype this thing. So this is like design thinking 101, right? I was like, okay, here's my idea. I don't know if this is like totally dumb or maybe brilliant. So I need to make a prototype and see what people think. So I hired this guy. He 3D printed me a version of this cup that we designed together. And then we like took it around and stood at like bus stops and in the middle of the street and busy downtown areas and started asking people, do you eat cereal? Would you ever drink cereal? (laughs) Do you like your cereal soggy or crisp? And like, we were trying to get validation that this was a good idea. Then we would show them the design. They would give their feedback. And so 
this is all design thinking, right? Like, absolutely. We have a prototype, we're getting feedback, we're making little tweaks and iterations. So long story short, that was the first time I really done like a full design thinking cycle for a physical product. And I found it really compelling. It like cut so many pieces out of the process and saved me a lot of time and money creating a cereal cup that in my head I thought everyone would love. Now I had validation they would love it. Yeah, definitely. And that just makes all of the ideas stronger. I think with IDOU, what we also wanted to do then was that a lot of people would learn some of those things and then try it in their company and then everybody else wasn't up to speed with it and it would fail. And then they'd get frustrated and they'd kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. They'd say, oh, design thinking doesn't work. And so that's why we wanted to get onto some of the more like level two and level three skills of design thinking. So when we go on to innovation, we're really pulling in the other lenses of design thinking. So we think about desirability, feasibility, viability. So when you get into innovation, you're thinking about, okay, well, how do I bring in the viability lens? How do I weave in the entire business model to this picture? And feasibility, how do I continue the prototyping process all the way through past initial concept? And then how do we bring in leadership? Like if you don't have leaders who are willing to make space for this kind of process, it's not going to go that far. It might work inside of one team or one unit, but not the entire company. So what does it mean for a leader to lead in this kind of environment? What are some of those attributes of leadership that you think anyone listening could take with them from this conversation? Yeah. So when we think about leadership, I think there's a really traditional model that comes to mind first for most people that a leader is a certain kind of person who's like standing at the front of the room. They're super confident. They do a lot of the talking. They're smart. So whatever they say sounds intelligent. They're decisive, ambitious, brave, directive. They delegate really quickly. That's one style of leadership. I think for innovation for creative problem solving, for true collaboration, the leadership skills are different. So you need people who can, instead of having all the answers or pretending that they have all the answers, can lead with questions and really invite participation. We see that leaders in these kinds of contexts need to be able to pull in lots of diverse perspectives especially because today the challenges that we're all trying to solve are so darn hard, right? You think about environmental issues or government or technology, they're all complex. So you need multiple perspectives. So you need a leader who can host all of those perspectives and make space for them to come together. And then you do need somebody who knows how to turn the corner and make people feel heard but keep the process going. And so that's where prototyping or in the larger category of leadership, just thinking about experiments. How do you pick the right few places to get started and help people test their way forward to feeling the new approach? So those are some of the things. I think another one that comes up is leading with a strong sense of purpose. So really not just telling great stories and sharing anecdotes, which is a great leadership skill, But knowing what the larger purpose is and the compass of the organization and storytelling to keep people moving in a common direction without dictating the critical steps that they need to follow. I like what you say about a great leader is someone that doesn't put a demand on the people. They let the people figure out what the demand is. 
And that's sort of counterintuitive. But in this great study that they did on the most successful teams in business, they found that the two things that matter the most to successful teams are one, that people have psychological safety among one another, and two, that they have meaningful control of their work. How can you give your employees and your teammates more control over their own decisions? And sometimes they get stuck and sometimes they want you to tell them, but at least giving them that autonomy and structuring that in a way that hopefully is guiding them down the right path is something that I think only the great leaders know how to do. Yeah, I think that's one of the hardest things as a leader of this style of leadership is you've made it so far in your career because you do know answers and you get used to people asking you for your opinion, but to switch gears and stop doing that and remember to ask a question has been a really tough shift to make. And yet at the same time, I'm always incredibly impressed with how other people solve the problems in better ways than I ever could have thought of if I pause and remember to do that. Mm -hmm. And the last one you talk about is power skills. So can you explain what some of those power skills are? Yeah, so with power skills, the way I think about it is they're related to soft skills. They are the soft skills. It's just a better way to talk about them. So soft skills are the things that in the workforce, everybody thinks you need in almost any job. They make you more effective in collaborating and working with others. So historically, there's stuff like empathizing, collaborating, being a great teamwork person, being adaptable, being a great communicator. I think in the modern world, some of the things that live in the same space of soft skills are being a critical thinker, being a creative problem solver, especially in today's world, knowing how to navigate ambiguity and uncertainty and still land on your feet and get things done. And so if these are the modern and the traditional power soft skills, I guess I think of soft skills as one of the very few things that I kind of hate in the world. I hate that phrase because it's Mm. quite demeaning to how valuable these skills are. I think because they're accepted as very commonplace, everyone thinks that everyone has them, like interviewing. You have a voice, you can talk to another person, so therefore you can interview. But clearly an investigative journalist is a better interviewer than the average Joe on the street. And so you actually have to learn these skills and practice them to get quite good at them. So if we call them soft skills and nobody ever teaches them and nobody ever focuses on practicing them, we're actually not going to be all that good. And so by calling them different things, we can elevate them. So power skills is one of the things that we call them at IDOU. Other organizations are referring to them as 21st century skills, so the skills that are needed in the modern workforce. I think that just gives them the value that they truly deserve and helps more people to pay attention and invest in actually developing these skills. Are there any that you think are more powerful than others? I mean, whatever is powerful is the one that you have the least, right? (laughs) I think that's powerful for that person to build that capability and add it into their repertoire. If I had to pick one, I would maybe say collaboration because today you just can't get anything done unless you collaborate. So I feel like most of them build up to being a great collaborator. Hmm. And how has remote work 
shifted that <laughs> narrative. And also, did you have to like refilm, re-record a lot of these courses with like the new way we work? <laughs> yeah. With remote work, I think it just dials up the need to have these skills even more. I think one of the things that we've been hearing about helping people feel psychologically safe, helping them feel supported, helping them feel like they can do their best work, even if they're doing it in a one-room apartment with a bunch of kids running around, is that we need to be empathic. We need to be more compassionate. We need to listen to people's needs and be better listeners. And so I think with remote work, it's actually forced us to dial up some of these power skills even to the next level. I think collaboration, it used to be a lot easier that we could walk into a room and have a conversation and think that we collaborated. Mm. It's a lot harder on a Zoom call to do that. So I think what remote work is forcing us to do is something that we probably needed to do all along, which is put a little more thought into choreographing the structure of a work session so that we can actually collaborate with each other. How do you do that? Well, how do you structure remote sessions to make sure you can collaborate? So there's the fast way and there's the slow way. So if it's really fast and it's like, oh my God, I have this meeting and I haven't prepped for it. I think it's bare minimum thinking through the structure of the meeting more carefully as we always should, but almost never do. So what is the purpose of that meeting? How do we make sure that we give people some space and time to warm up? How do we give them a little bit of information so that their juices are flowing, but then not take the whole time with a broadcast, just talking to people unidirectionally, but make time for collaboration? So bare minimum, it's giving that kind of structure to whatever amount of time we're gathering. If there's more time, it's really thinking about setting up multiple means so it's not just voice so that we can participate. I certainly love all of the different apps that you can use to do something like Post-its in a virtual world so that quieter people or more introverted people have a moment to give their opinion so that it's not only one voice can be heard at a time. So those are some of the things that we do a bit more. I love the Post-it app idea. Which one do you guys use? We use a variety, kind of all of them, you know, yeah. so everything from Mural to Miro to anything we can find. A lot of times we'll just do things with even straight up docs or virtual slides, but set them up in a way that it feels like post-its oh. so that more people can voice their opinions than just using their voice. I don't think a lot of people do the post-it brainstorming thing. Like maybe you can give an example of a version of that that you've done that maybe people can think about as they're thinking of new ideas, design thinking, I guess, for what it's worth. Yeah. Sometimes design thinking just gets thought of as just using Post-its in the <laughs> office. And it's definitely more than that. But Post-its have become such a great affordance for multiple people being able to express their opinions in ways that aren't fully finished. You know, so they can get an idea out when it is half-baked, which is half the struggle, right? And so... A lot of times what we'll do is pose a question. So it might be, how can we improve our experience of working even though most of us are remote? Or how do we want to improve the learning experience in X, Y, and Z moment? And then even if it's in a shared Google Doc, just allowing people to take a moment and go heads down and list off some of the things that they're thinking about. They can do that in Post-its. They can do that in text. 
And giving people the space to say, it doesn't have to be a complete thought. It just can be a half-baked idea. And sometimes the wilder the ideas, the better, because that'll trigger somebody else to think of something else. And so we'll just let people go heads down and then we'll come up for air and talk about it a little bit and see what does that make people think and how do we get to more ideas than just one. So you can see it's a little bit different than if you're doing it all with voice, only one person can talk at a time. And so you can only get through so much in 45 minutes. Yeah, and like if you're an introvert, to your point, like I think I'm actually an introvert, even though I maybe appear extroverted. Like you just want that silence and those few minutes to sort of like really go inside and get into that stream of consciousness of writing things down. Like I feel like whenever I'm on the spot in a meeting, it's just like, you know, and it's maybe not as much ingenuity as I could probably give out if I just took a couple minutes to be quiet and like (laughs) just start thinking really deeply. So yeah, I agree with you for sure. One of my favorite things is with it being in person and being able to actually use pens and pieces of paper is that so many people actually can draw better than they can use words. I'm on the Mm. words end of the spectrum rather than the pictures. And so I love words. But a lot of the people that I work with don't express themselves best in words. And I've worked with a lot of people that English is not their first language. So visuals are a better way to get their ideas out. Mm. And so I love it when somebody's a little bit quiet and you're thinking, oh God, are they even engaged? Are they even participating? And then they whip out this beautiful drawing of something that really pushes the thinking in a new direction. That's so cool. Do you ever notice differences, especially in these power skills between men and women? I mean, I think that everybody can have them. But I've actually gotten a little bit obsessed in the last five years or so about learning more about female leadership and the way women tend to be perceived in the world of business. So I have read a lot of studies about the traits of female leaders. None of these studies are ones I've produced. They're usually quite binary and it's just like men versus women instead Mm. of anything in between. But There are so many studies talking about traits of female leaders, and there are many business leadership skills that women are strong in, but women tend to be scored as especially strong in things that are relational and relationship-based, right? So things like empathy, teamwork, things around distributing power. And so one of the things that I struggle with is the fact that these skills tend to be even more prevalent in female leaders. At the same time, we know in the marketplace, these kinds of skills are really high in demand. So there are lots of other studies coming out from places like LinkedIn Learning and McKinsey that are saying that companies want these skills and they can't find enough people who have them. And then the third bucket of research I've been doing is stuff that we know, but it's kind of horrifying when it really smacks you in the face, is that women tend to be overlooked at the most senior levels in companies. So they've got these skills. These skills are in demand, and yet we still don't see enough female leaders. So some of the things that I've been reading about are a few years ago, there were more CEOs of large companies named John than there were female CEOs. I saw that. Uh, I died. Like four to one. It's so bad. Four to one Johns versus women in venture capital, 
if it's an all-female run company, the amount of venture capital going to them is like really low. 2.3% everyone Mm -hmm. of venture capital funding. Hence why I am now a venture capitalist. (laughs) Yeah. By the way, I'm only one of 12% of the women in venture capital. That's more than I would have thought. It was 9% (laughs) like two years ago. So we're making slow progress. Wow. Yeah. So these are all the puzzle pieces that I'm getting obsessed with. And so I think that's why when I think about power skills and I think about what is my purpose? What do I want to see happen with all of this? I have two things. One is that I think I want to see women feel proud of these kind of skills and really own them and not be embarrassed that they're spending a lot of time nurturing employees, that they're spending so much time going in the background and setting all the right conditions so that great collaboration can happen. I think sometimes we're told, oh my God, where does all of your time go? Why are you doing that? That's not valuable. It is valuable. And these things are really, really important. And then the second thing is to help more leaders, even if they don't identify as female in the gender spectrum, to actually want these skills too. And to really believe that they're incredibly worthwhile in cultivating to be more empathic, more compassionate. And so I joke sometimes, it's kind of tongue in cheek, but I like to say, you know, why don't more people want to lead like a lady? You know, for so many years in my career, I was told, you should maybe try leading a little more like a man. How could you lead with a little more confidence? How could you be more directive? How could you be more decisive? And that's great. I can learn all those skills. I want those skills too. But how could it be equally important for anyone anywhere to be asked to lead like a lady? I I just think that that would be interesting. Lead like a lady should totally be like a bigger catchphrase that we pass around (laughs) in our women's networks. I love that. You're so right. I think we get discouraged and sort of ashamed of these feminine leadership skills. I mean, it's why the whole like pantsuit generation (laughs) happened in the 80s and 90s, right? So... I love that, to embrace what it is about the feminine leadership style that you have. Yeah. Speaking of which, you are making a big change yourself. You already have started this change, right? You have stepped out of your role. You're stepping out of your role as dean of IDOU. Mm -hmm. Can you explain a little bit about that and what you might be doing next? Yeah, definitely. I think I just have this little internal clock that tells me sometimes it's time for change and I have to scare myself. Right. We're going full circle to the beginning of this episode. (laughs) You love change, Suzanne. Tell us about how to embrace change. Yeah. So I've been at IDEO for 20 years because it kept changing and it kept offering me new things to do. And I started to question, just like the rest of the world with the great resignation going on, in the long tail of this pandemic, you know, I started to question what's right for me next. And I do absolutely love two things. One is digital learning experiences. And I think that is a really, really important part of our future in increasing affordability and access to great learning. And so that's something that I'm excited to lean into And I also love helping other people with their new ventures and adventures. So whether that's inside of a larger organization or in a startup. And so I'm trying to bring all of those things together. And what I do next, I'm still attached to IDOU. So I'm on a slow, long off-ramp. So I'm still advising there and collaborating really closely with the other amazing leaders on that team. 
But I'm starting to also spread my wings and look for what's next and working with a couple other organizations on new things that they have afoot. Very cool. I love the way that you actually strive to give back. And there's there's still this thread inside of you that, to your point, loves learning because there is so much change in what comes along with education and learning and this insight that I've seen in teaching women all kinds of things for the last 10 plus years there's this transformation that happens when there's an unlock in their brain there's an unlock in their life and the more that you can help facilitate those unlocks <laughs> the cooler and more rewarding the job is right because you're literally watching lives transform in front of you so kudos to you well and that's how you and I started talking in the first place is that I think we're both really really fascinated and driven to help more people achieve that experience of feeling unblocked that yeah. we both have had the honor of having ourselves. Yeah, for sure. All right, we're going to wrap this with a quick lightning round if you're ready. I want you to just blurt out the first thing that comes to mind. These may or may not have to do with anything we've talked about in this podcast. <laughs> but they're <laughs> things that I genuinely want to know. All right, the first one is, what's the best book you've read in the last year? Ooh, so many. But I think my new favorite is Kindred by Octavia Butler. It's really good. Oh, I have heard a lot about that one. So powerful. So powerful. Okay. Love it. Do you like working remote or in person better? I think if I was forced to choose, I'd say I like being remote, which shocks me. Are you an introvert or extrovert? I'm incredibly social, but I'm right on the cusp between introvert and extrovert. And so I think in a workplace, I'm so extroverted mm -hmm. that I exhaust myself. Mm. And so I think that's why I like being able to have a little more control over when social comes and goes. Maybe that's my problem. Okay. <laughs> I think I'm with you on this. I'm going to use that answer for my future interviews. Which power skill are you best at? I'm really good at empathizing, almost to my detriment. <laughs> what was the most favorite class you've ever taken? Oh, maybe it's usually something that I've done recently because I have a short memory. But one of the things that I invested in learning recently was singing Ooh. because I just wanted to feel more confident in a sing-along. I've done this before, so I'm not judging at all. I think it's amazing. It was so fascinating just to learn how to use my body as an instrument. And it just unlocked things I had never even thought about before. And so that was kind of earth shattering. Are you going to keep it up? <laughs> Will there be any performances soon? <laughs> <laughs> I went through a small phase of performing, but I know that's not what I'm driven to do. I would rather just sing around a fire. It's okay. kind of my level. <laughs> cool. I'm good with that. <laughs> Lastly, what is your favorite mantra or quote that gets you through a hard day? I have a little bit of an internal cheerleader and me. And so the thing that I constantly hear is just, let's do it. Let's just move forward. Let's make things happen. And so I often find that that gets me through and over a hump. And it can also help with teams, just that kind of enthusiasm mm -hmm. and excitement and motivation to get things done. I love it. Well, Suzanne, we like to leave our listeners with a little project or assignment every week and knowing that, you know, Dean of IDOU, I thought you might have a piece of homework that you can give out to everyone who's listening. 
Yeah. Oh my God. I talk with my daughter all the time. We debate why is homework valuable? So I love (laughs) giving things for people to focus on in their own time. I thought today it'd be fun to focus on helping people navigate ambiguity and go on a journey of change. And so if I think about it, there are like three simple steps. The first is just noticing and naming what it is. And I think that's part of the puzzle that people often have is that they're just faffing around, not really articulating what it is that they're trying to work through. Mm. And so putting words around it, naming what's hard, like where do you feel that tightness in your chest or pain in your belly when you think about it, pulling out some of the tensions as you and I were talking about. So actually putting that down on paper and in words so that you can look at it again and again and again. That's step one. Step two is to get curious So to diverge, pull in lots and lots of input from tons of people, do secondary research, look on the web, talk to people and ask them how they tackle that challenge. What is it that they do? Talk to people who are good at it, bad at it, all those sorts of things. And then the third step is to find the right place to start small. So just pick something that resonates with you that's tiny and just give yourself the chance to give it a try. And that doesn't mean that's right. And that's what you're going to do till the end of time. It just means that you got your energy moving in a different direction Mm. and you'll learn something from it. Mm -hmm. It's your own version of design thinking, right? You're prototyping an idea. It might work. It might not. At least you're getting feedback. So yeah, I love it. I love it. And where can we find more about you and IDOU? Yeah. So IDOU, the best place to go is IDOU.com. There is tons of information on there. And we do lots and lots of things to share with the broad community. So we have our own podcast called the Creative Confidence Series. Lots and lots of information that we're sharing out with the rest of the world. For me personally, I'm still figuring things out, but you can find me in all the common places on Twitter and LinkedIn and Instagram. I'm always at Suze Howard. Love it. Well, thanks for coming on, Suzanne. And for everyone out there, that is our show for today. If you enjoyed it and you enjoyed Suzanne, please go follow her and tell her that. But also you can leave us a virtual high five by rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. I'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to Teach Me Something New, a production of iHeartRadio and Britain Co. I'm your host, Britt Morin. Find more information about each episode at Brit.co slash listen. You can also find me on social media. I'm at Brit or follow us at Brit and Co. Teach Me Something New is executive produced by Allie Ives and Allie Perry with additional production and sound design by Mark Lemmerjazy and Aaron Peterson.